there's a spiritual dynamic of depression that people don't always know about. It's almost as if there's like a, a force field around you where it's very hard to feel answers to prayer. It's very hard to feel the spirit. It's very hard to feel anything light or good or, or um, spiritual. And that's, that's the most tragic part, I think, of depression is that the, the thing that can help most is sometimes the thing you can feel least. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. My guest today grew up in Palmyra, New York, and has lived in Orem, Utah, Tallahassee, Florida, and Longmount, Colorado. She's been married to her husband, John, for a quarter of a century. They are the parents of two adult children and grandparents to a very, very loved grandson. She enjoys walking and talking with friends and family, taking pictures in nature, and spending time with her grandson. I'm pleased to present Wendy Jagerson. Wendy, are you ready to share your story of hope? I am. Thank you. Wonderful. So, Wendy was an amazing Tetris player when she was younger. (laughs) This is a little known fact about her (laughs) before we dive in. And tell me how that has helped you in your adult life. Well, I don't know if anybody's played Tetris, but there's all the different shapes that you have to fit in to a certain um, shape and it's timed. And so it's under pressure. Anyway, um, when I, when I try to, put things in my closets. I have a good eye for, okay, I could slide this in right here and make this fit. And it kind of becomes a game for me. (laughs) When I I organize closets and drawers to try to fit as many things in as neatly as possible. Oh, that is so fun. See, I was a Tetris player when I was younger. (laughs) The only problem I learned is I could never play it right before bed or I would dream about it. Oh, yeah, right? (laughs) But I never thought about it with regards to uh, organizing closets. But it's true. I'm also really good at packing a lot of stuff in a car because I see things the same way. Same thing. Yep. (laughs) Same skill set, I think. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, that is a fun little known fact to start with. (laughs) Wendy, your life has been kind of crazy. (laughs) Wendy has lived a a very interesting life. She has struggled with clinical depression and has been diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder and anxiety and, you know, MS, multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe the best way to start off is to talk about how these diagnoses have impacted your life, Mm -hmm. what they kept you from doing, and perhaps what baby steps you began taking to overcome some of these challenges? So um, I think a lot of times we are born with predispositions and um, when it collides with life, life circumstances, a lot of times it does develop into something more clinical. I'm an oldest child and a perfectionist. Mm. And um, I babysat a lot. And um, our family was kind of, there were high expectations of our family, and I was the oldest. So I think just the combination of that, wanting to get good grades in school, all of it, I think that collided with just a predisposition for the illness, because no one else in my family struggles with it. Mm. I mean, at least to a clinical degree. Um, And so uh, just as far as that goes, I think when I was younger, I was always kind of typically kind of quote unquote moody and uh, kind of um, my parents are real positive people. So they were like, can you quit being so moody? Kind of, they didn't, none of us understood what I was dealing with. And then actually um, eighth grade is, was my really last good year. And it was a really good year. I was valedictorian and went to all state band and most likely to succeed. But then in ninth grade, something shifted. Like physically, I kind of felt it chemically shifting. It was just an odd feeling. And I just became very depressed. And my grades suffered and my social life suffered. And um, it just kind of turned into kind of a 
a downward spiral mm. into my um, young adulthood, really. And so um, I went on an LDS mission, and that was very, very difficult um, because um, you're with a, a companion, uh, um, a partner um, to do to do the work. So I was never alone, and oftentimes you need kind of alone time away from people to kind of pull yourself back together. Mm. And I never had that. I always had prayer that helped me. And so when I came home from, from serving that mission, um, I was able to finally go to a psychologist and psychiatrist and, and become diagnosed and realize that it wasn't all necessarily my fault, that it wasn't, I wasn't just moody, that there was a reason for it. And and the medicine actually really helps if you if you um, picture a roller coaster, um, the medicine kind of shaves off the top and bottom 10% of the roller coaster kind of mm. it doesn't cure you it doesn't fix you. But it, it uh, makes it makes it possible to live a more a more normal life like everybody else, kind of like within the range of maybe a normal moody person, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it just shaves off the, the almost the impossible lows and highs and gives you a more workable range to deal with. And so bipolar two is different than bipolar one. Bipolar two has really heavy depression with, with just kind of slight elevated moods called ma mania. But whereas mm -hmm. bipolar one, the mania is very, very dangerous and people can go on, you know, like million dollar spending sprees, it's hospitalized. That's not what I have. Bipolar two is just heavy, heavy on the depression with some with some elevated mood in between. And it's just kind of unpredictable about when the swing will happen. Um, and then there's some, some just very regular times in between. Wow. So that's, that's bipolar. <laughs> no, those are, those are good things to explain because I think it's important that people understand what these things look like yeah. because sometimes people might have bipolar disorder and just not realize that they have it. And often from what I understand, it goes undiagnosed. They'll be diagnosed with depression mm -hmm. instead of being bipolar, and and the medication doesn't always line up the way it's That's supposed to. Absolutely true. And even even afterwards, when there was a time where we tried all different medicines, and the medicine that actually works for me targets dopamine, whereas serotonin is what all the almost all the antidepressants serotonin reuptake inhibitors mm. or whatever it's called. Mine isn't a serotonin problem. Mine's a dopamine. And mm. so the only one medicine helps with that, whereas all the other ones don't. So there's, there's a trial and error also with medication. So there's a little. <clears throat> so what would you say about um, people who are struggling maybe in trying to find the right medication to help control either depression or bipolar disorder? What advice would you give to someone who's struggling with that? Number one, be patient with yourself. Um, it's so easy to get discouraged. Um, the difference between, there's, a psych, there's psychologists and, and therapists and there's psychiatrists. Psychiatrists prescribe medicine. Psychologists and therapists are more like talking, talking things through and coping mechanisms and that kind of thing. So a psychiatrist is one that you would go to if you needed medicine and they monitor that. But it is absolutely a trial and error. Even they will tell you that because everybody's chemistry is different. So even if it looks like it would match up, sometimes it doesn't. It, um, after, after I had my, my babies, um, we went through that, like I said, for 10 years, I probably did eight or nine of the regular SSRIs the, that mm -hmm. target the serotonin. And they just made me sleepy and groggy, but they didn't do anything for maybe mm. just a little bit, but not enough to matter. Um, whereas this other one that I take um, is it's always been helpful from the very beginning. It just didn't help in the middle part. <laughs> maybe I needed, maybe I needed a time of darkness to understand more about, you know, have more empathy for people who struggle even more than I do. I don't know. I've often wondered that. Hmm. What, what did your time of darkness teach you? Oh, just prayer. <laughs> um, just to be prayerful and just to hang on to any, any light, any hope that I could managed to, to find, to hold on to that. And also to um, try to find people who, who were kind and patient and empathetic. My husband is very much that has, he's been, 
he's been my very best supporter through the whole thing. And he's been frontline with the hard stuff too. But, you know, we'll probably talk about my journey later on. I found some friends that were just absolutely crucial and walking and talking with them has been, has made all the difference um, mm. and kind of breaking through that darkness that happens. Um, a lot of times, I don't know, people might read up on things. There's a spiritual dynamic of depression that people don't always know about. It's almost as if there's like a, a force field around you where it's very hard to feel answers to prayer. It's very hard to feel the spirit. It's very hard to feel anything light or good or, or um, spiritual. And that's, that's the most tragic part, I think, of depression is that the thing that can help most is sometimes the thing you can feel least. Um, and that, and it's not that you're not worthy of those things. It's part of the illness. And, um, and so that's something really important that I think people should remember that it's not their fault if they don't feel like their prayers are going past the ceiling or if they're not, if they're not getting answers. Um, that's why I said just really <clears throat> self-love and patience is a really important aspect and one that I actually struggle with also. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I have family members who struggle with this. So I've heard that kind of description before because they've had to describe it to me. Yeah. And I can't even imagine how hard that would be. So you mentioned prayer being mm -hmm. so, so important. Yeah. How how does prayer help you when you can't always feel the answers? You know, for me, I've always been a prayerful person, and I am a big believer in Christ's grace. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I just, I have a lot of, a lot of spiritual experiences in my storehouse that I draw from, and that reminds me that I've had answers to prayers in the past. I've had spiritual experiences. I've had the light breakthrough in the past, and my husband just always. He always tells me this. When you're in it, it's hard to remember that anything good ever happened or that anything good could ever happen again. And my husband um, has just always been very good and to, to remind me, Wendy, we've been through this before. It ends. You're going to get through this. You just have to hang on. And he's right. And um, the, the more I practice, the, the better, the easier it gets for me to pull out of it the medicine helps. But I think, I think also built into a mental illness are also, you know, you just develop habits, you know, as you go through life and mental illness, I think there's a cluster of struggles that come with it. And so as you're healing from mental illness, um, you can change your habits and your coping mechanisms. And that's what helps um, make the, the depressions, I believe, end a little quicker. Um, helps you to cope a little bit more in them. But as far as prayer, I've just always prayed, even when I don't feel like there's an answer. And I've just always asked, asked to feel that love or to just, well, just to be able to help me to hang on because there is so much more in store. And I, and I just need to be reminded of that. So I, I ask for that a lot. Please help me to remember that it's going to get better. I love that comment you had about having your storehouse of, yeah. of things that you remember. And I think that is important. Remembering is a huge, huge word. Um, and it is hard when you're in the pits of despair yeah. <laughs> to remember some of yeah. these things. Like I have felt God's love before. Yeah. I felt his arms around me. Mm -hmm. I've seen how he sent these angels into my life, whether it be your husband or your friends that you were talking about you know that he's answered yeah. those prayers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is through people that you encounter here on earth. I think it's often through people. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You've mentioned coping techniques and, mm -hmm. and habits. Mm -hmm. What are some of the coping techniques and habits that have helped you with mental illness? Well, the biggest one that I learned um, early on is um, both perfectionists and people who struggle with mental illness um, tend to have all or nothing black or white thinking, <laughs> yeah. right? Even, even the most normal of us can, can deal with that just as humans. So, but depression, seriously, it's all or nothing black or white. That's actually why sometimes suicide feels like an answer because it feels like I either 
live and be miserable or die and find relief. That's mm. the that's the most um, dramatic black or white, mm -hmm. all or mm -hmm. nothing. So instead of all or nothing, I try to focus on small or something. So you can't, like as far as even service, um, you can't help everybody with everything, but you can help someone with something. Mm. Um, I can't do everything today, but I can do a couple of things. I can get in the shower. I can go on a walk. Um, I can wipe off the counter. I could make my bed. I could practice the piano. I can do just a couple things if I can't do everything. Um, and so that's the, been the biggest thing that's helped me, small or something. I love that. Yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah. And I know you, you found great help with walking. Yes. Why don't you talk me through that? Because that's been, that's a very fun journey. Can I tell you just a little bit of a backstory to help yes, you understand? Yes, please do. Okay. Okay. So like I said, um, when I came home um, and were, was diagnosed, um, I was on medicine for a little while and I immediately, almost immediately started feeling better. This was when I was 23 and 24. And then um, my husband and I got married a year later and we had a honeymoon baby right off the bat. So I had to go off the medicine, like cold turkey, and you're not supposed to do that. Oh. But I... I just, I just was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know we were going to get pregnant. And so I stopped immediately. And so what I did is um, we had that, our first baby, and then we had our son two and a half years later. So while I was pregnant and nursing and pregnant, um, I didn't take any medicine and I just tried to keep my life very simple. And, and I did okay with that. Um, my son um, was in the, the NICU, the newborn intensive care unit for the first 10 days of his life. And that, so the other thing about bipolar is sleep deprivation is almost always the cause of a manic episode. Mm. So young moms sleep deprived, right? But especially that I was discharged from the hospital. I don't even remember if I was able to hold my son. I was discharged and had to pump at home and then go to the hospital and be available to nurse, but not have a room. And so we did that for seven, a week and I was sleep deprived and I was worried. And so that really kicked my depression into high gear. And, and then we tried the medicine that didn't work before, that did work before, and it, and it didn't work. Mm. And so that kicked off the 10 years from my son was born in 1999 until 2010. So about 11 years, we tried all different medicines. I, I was only able to nurse him a couple months and then I needed to stop and try to be on medicine. And um, so I just spent a lot of that time in bed. There were, there were a few, a, a couple of years in between that I, that I functioned pretty well, but so I spent, I spent a lot of those years in bed. So in the end of 2010, I remember I was sitting on the side of my bed. I, I had some social anxiety, so I, I, it was even hard for me to leave the house and sometimes even hard for me to leave my bedroom and hard for me to go to church. Like it was just hard for me to leave the house. And so I was sitting on the side of my bed thinking, I'm not actually doing anybody any good. I'm not doing any good for myself, my family, nobody else. I just wish I didn't have to be here anymore. I wish I could just go, but I wasn't suicidal. So I'm like, okay, well, I can't die. So I'm going to have to learn how to live. And I remember specifically, I, I believe it was, you know, the spirit or an answer to prayer um, that I, that I was kind of, um, prompted to start walking, but I was scared to leave the house. So the prompting I had was to walk to destinations. So I started, we lived four blocks away from Harmon's grocery store. So every day I would walk to Harmon's for something, a gallon of milk or a head of lettuce or something, just enough that I can carry in a bag. Or I would mail letters in a nearby office complex, or I would drop off or pick up library books. And, and, and even Costco was a three, three mile walk. I would start picking up prescriptions anywhere I could go where it wasn't something heavy that I could take or bring back. I did. So I walked destinations like that almost every day for about two years wow. before, before I even brought people into the equation. Um, 2011 and 2012, it was all that. And um, a good side effect there is that I, I was able to lose 45 pounds and keep wow. it off. Um, wow. And, and that was helpful in so many ways. Um, 
helped me feel better physically, but also emotionally. And just walk, walking is so good, especially in the sun. But also when there is no sun, um, I would especially want to go out and walk because I have a little bit of seasonal affective disorder and that happens in the winter. And when you look outside and you, you see the gray, it just seems so bleak. It's but if you, go, if you go out in it, there's still some light. The sun is still shining. And so I especially went out when I didn't want to, when it was gray. And that actually was probably the most helpful part was just to face all of that, all of those hard things, leaving the house on gray days. And anyway, so that's, that's how walking played into it. I, I believe walking saved me. That is such a fascinating story. And, and it's true because uh, walking does give you that natural high. Yeah, endorphins. You know? Yeah, those those wonderful endorphins that your body needs. And so it it's like God gave you the right answer at the right time. Just start walking. And since you were scared to go outside, pick a place. Exactly, you know? right? If you have a destination, you have your goal. And most of the time, I didn't really have to talk to people, maybe the checker. But, and so <laughs> it was it was a way that I could just practice practice, um, getting better and, and, and it built on itself. Wow. Now you didn't leave your social anxiety untouched. You also did something about that as well. (laughs) Once you conquered, it was like, once you conquered one demon, you, you, you focused on the next one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about your process of what you did to conquer your social anxiety. Well, could we talk a little bit about um, my family? Um, Yes. Let's do that. So um, just a little background on that. Um, my, um, my husband and I, um, we actually met in the mission field when we were serving a mission for our church. Um, didn't really know each other out there, but came home at the same time. And our parents live five blocks away from each other, and they still mm. do. And so we, it made it very easy for us to date when we got home. And he was actually the one that helped me get medicine. Um, mm. we, we got engaged, and, it, and it, the blackness started the darkness kind of closed in and he's the one that suggested I get medicine. Anyway, so we got married in 1995, then in 2012. So I started walking at the end of 2010. In 2012, August of 2012, he told me that he just had never been able to actually believe in God. Um, He had been given the advice to quote unquote, fake it until you make it with the intent of making it not hypocritical, but like, Mm -hmm. just keep, keep doing the good things and it'll come. And he just feels like he never had, never had the spiritual experiences that everybody else talked about. And so he told me in 2012, I was starting to feel healthier. I'd started going to church and, and doing all the things. And he just sat me down one day and just said, you know, I just, I don't believe in anything I can't see. And I haven't ever, and I've tried and tried and tried. And so that was a big blow for me um, because we had this in common and we'd raised our kids in, in our church um, with that belief. And so that just really, it really rocked my foundation of, he told me he waited until I was healthy enough to handle it. So that's mm-hmm. like a, a compliment and a, and a difficulty all in one. So yeah. he told me that. So it, um, and so uh Fast forward to about September 2013. So about a year later, I had spent a year. And what I did is I incorporated habits during that year. I I would wake up and make my bed and then I would um, practice the piano and I would go out on my walk and I would wipe the counters and I would I would try to do floss my teeth. Flossing my teeth at night was the first habit um, that I started. And uh-huh. anyway, these habits are the things that kind of helped me um, build stability and momentum in my life. Anyway, so September 2013, I had just been kind of mourning that year. I, it wasn't depression. It was a mourning. It was different because I continued to function. And what that night I just prayed, it was September 4th. And I just prayed, what more can I do? I just don't know what else I can do. I'm trying everything. And and it just doesn't, it's not getting easier. And I don't want to have an adversarial relationship with my husband. I want to be unified. It's just this, I, you know, God and Jesus mean everything to me. And my husband means everything to me. And it was just so hard for me to figure out how to, how do I even do this? You know, how mm-hmm. do I keep going? Um, anyway, and the prompting came 
words in my head, words, words in my mind, you need to know more people in the stake. Now stake is just a group of congregations in a, in a geographic area. And in, in Utah, it's, it's just kind of a few neighborhoods that are, that are near each other. And I thought, well, I need to know more people in my cul-de-sac. Like, what are you <laughs> talking about? Like, neighborhood? I just don't even know the people across the street. Because no, no people. I've just been walking. No people. And so I thought, how am I going to do that? And it just turned out that the next day, I realized that there was going to be a, an adult religion class taught at the church. And I thought, I'm going to try to do that. It's a stake religion class. It's mm -hmm. going to be people throughout this neighborhood. And that was the wording of my prompting. And then also, so I thought I'm going to do that tomorrow. I'm going to, I'm going to go walking. I'm going to go to that class. But then the, the other thing I did differently the next morning on September 5th is that I um, walked my daughter to the bus stop and decided, oh, I'll just I'll just walk this morning. I won't go to a destination. I'll just walk around. The, we lived across from a track with the cemetery above it. And, um, and I, I noticed ahead of me, there were four ladies that were in our neighborhood or our, our church congregation. And they stopped at the base of where, where the path leads up to the cemetery. The cemetery kind of has um, hills that you can walk up and down. And they did that for good exercise. They mm. waited at the base of that hill for me and invited me to come. And I said, no, 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 I don't do people. I don't walk with people. I'm just walking alone. And they're the kind of people, they're our um, clergy members' wives, um, they're the women's leaders, presidents, they're, they're like the, just probably the four most spiritual kind people in our congregation mm -hmm. just, hap just happened to be them, right? And um, they didn't take no for an answer. And I was like, okay, I'll get to go and I will just listen to them. And, and, but they were, they skillfully drew me into the conversation and I had another prompting that I needed to walk with these women. And um, how did that make you feel by right? the way with the social like, anxiety? Right. I was just like, no, I <laughs> need to walk with these women. I will walk today. Um, but then it occurred to me, um, these women live in my stake. Um, my ward or, or small congregation is part of this big, these big congregations. And so um that that was my prompting, and so then I'm like, oh, I'm I've just been given an answer to mm. the prompting I had. Not only will I go to this class and meet people, but also I'll be able to walk with these amazing women, and I did. And I'm not a morning person, and they walked at 7:20, and that was very difficult. But but it really taught me a lot. And um, how I started doing more people is um, the president of our women's our women's group. Um, the Relief Society, she was one of these ladies. And um, like the third day that week, we started walking together. We, we were the only ones that walked together. And I just said, you know, I, are there any women that you're worried about? Like, is there anybody that you think might use an extra visit or something? And she told me about two of them. And I ended up visiting both of them the following week, they actually happened to both have birthdays the following week. Wow. Yeah, right. Like I think Heavenly Father, like I look back and could it have been lined up more <laughs> easily for poor Wendy to like just follow follow the breadcrumbs, Wendy. We're I'll teach you exactly how to do this. And so the first lady, um, she is an older lady who didn't drive and um uh, one of the things we do in our church is there's there's temples that are different than our that our weekly church congregations and she went to the temple to do um, that kind of worship and service every week but couldn't drive and so because I was doing that as well I drove her there every week for two years and wow. that and that was really neat because it was something I was already doing and it was something that I could I could drive and she didn't so that was an easy way I could serve her and then the other um, woman was my age but she also had children and a, and a mother that lived there and they had a lot of problems they had um, physical problems um, emotional spiritual financial a lot of problems and so I learned I, I visited her and saw that there were a lot they could use some help and so I literally probably went over to their house at least at least three or four times a week but probably almost every day of that year and I would just look around. We had, there's a quote that says, first observe, then serve. 
And mm. I would just look around and, and I would see, oh, they don't normally take out their garbage. So every time I went over, I would take out their garbage. And then sometimes I would sweep or sometimes anyway. And um, it taught me so much. So those two first two visits were so key to the rest of my healing and journey because that it taught Heavenly Father taught me exactly what I needed to do by just showing me step by step just with those two people. And then I just branched out from there and I I felt very strongly that I needed to follow this prompting that I'd been given. I felt like it had come as an answer to prayer, as an answer through the Holy Spirit. And um and so I just kind of would wait after church or after activities and try to talk with people or and then it eventually got to where I would go through lists, congregation lists, and see if there were any names that popped out at me. And then I would call them or email them and ask if I could visit them. Sometimes when I was out walking, I would even be drawn to a door and I would just knock on a door and wow. Meet that <laughs> and I learned all those skills as a as a missionary, as a proselyting missionary. Mm -hmm. And even though that mission was the hardest thing I ever did, it taught me those skills. And um, so I feel like it was such a, such a gift um, to me that even though that was the hardest struggle, it gave me, it gave me skills for a, a, an opportunity 25 years later in my life that I could use those skills to bless people because it wasn't, at first it was all about me. It was all about conquering my social anxiety. And I would even say that to people. The reason I'm here is because I'm trying to overcome social anxiety. Would you just let me come in and talk to you and practice? Like I'm, I'm so like transparent. People just believed me because <laughs> <laughs> who says that, you know, like anyway, it's and, gotta be true, man. Right, right? <laughs> who comes up with this? And so that's what it was. So, and, and, and most people thought I was selling something and everybody was I think very surprised when it never came up in the conversation that it was really just about practicing, getting to know people, making friends and trying to make their lives better. Mm -hmm. I, I, I very soon realized that it wasn't about me. It was about other people. And, and through that visiting, I ended up over two years, I ended up visiting over 500 women wow. all, all through Orem, you know, starting with that stake that I talked <sighs> about and then all through Orem. And I went as far South as Payson, um, out to Eagle Mountain, up to Layton. Um, I, I visited old friends in those areas and it just became this amazing thing. And because of that, I was strong enough and had enough courage that when my daughter graduated from high school, I went on a tour at Utah Valley University with her and felt very strongly that I should go back to college. And I only had seven credits because um, school was so hard for me, so scary. And so that my depression and anxiety would get in the way. So because of that, I was able to go back to college and over four years, gain an associate degree. And I continued my visiting. I would talk with professors afterwards. I would talk with um, students and so many people that were depressed and anxious. Um, I was led to, and I was able to help them. And there were several who were dangerously depressed um, that I was able to walk and talk with for, for, you know, months and years and was able to really make a difference with them. And, and also I was able to make the most dear friends. Um, Heavenly Father helped me to find my, find my tribe, find my network. <laughs> that. And, and they're the most unlikely friends. We have nothing in common, literally, and except for belief in Christ and wanting to be good people. And um, I have these four or five friends that are just dear, dear to me. And they helped me. They helped me when, when I was having hard times as well. And, and we continue to help each other. Um, so that, that was how that happened. That's how I, that's how people came into the picture. It's a long story. Sorry, but. Wow. Oh, I'm, I'm sitting here uh, with tears in my eyes, just thinking how incredible it is that God can take broken people yeah, you know, like you or like mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. and help us when we're stuck just looking mm -hmm. at our own problems. He yeah. says, "I want you to get to know other people," and it's it's such an interesting process that by looking outside of your own problems, I don't know, I don't know if it just gives us perspective. What do you think it is that it does? 
Well, there's a quote that I, I read one time um, that says, if you hold a pebble in front of your eye, that's all you can see, but you toss it on the ground and you see it in perspective. And, and you see that there's so much more to the picture than just this big pebble in front of your eye. And I think that's part of it. I think, you know, a lot of times, I think as humans, we just we just come a little bit selfish. It's important to um, to look after ourselves, but I think it's easy to get in our own heads then if you add mental illness on top of that, you're always just trying to figure out why am I feeling this way? Like, can't, I just mm -hmm. got to figure this out. And so it actually even maybe causes you to think and in, go inward even more. And so um, to, to look outward, it absolutely does that. It's like tossing the pebble on the ground. It, it helps you to, it's almost a, a, like a healthy distraction um, to be able to look around and see, you know, and, and you don't have to look far to find somebody that's worse off than you. That's so true. Right. And then, <laughs> and then, it, and then it really does put your problems in perspective. And, and it just is, I, I just think of it as a healthy distraction. It just helps get you out of your head and out of your own, own life and into somebody else's. And it always just feels good to connect with people, even, even people with social anxiety, if you practice, it feels, <laughs> it feels good to connect with others. We're, we're not meant to be here alone. We're here to help each other. And, and so it's a kind of a thing that doesn't, it's counterintuitive mm -hmm. when you feeling, when you're feeling bad to try to go out and help somebody else that feels bad, but it, it truly is the thing that works the best. So it's so amazing. Yeah. And it was exactly what you needed at exactly yeah. the right time. Yeah. And it was baby, let's like you said, baby steps. At first I had to just practice leaving the house. And mm -hmm. then two years later, I, I, that's when I started adding people. So Heavenly Father was very kind to me Yeah, helped, helped me all along the way. Oh my goodness, yes. We are going to pause and take a quick break, but when we get back, I'm going to have Wendy talk to us a little bit about loving people where they are. How many of you out there feel like your life is chaotic, crazy, and completely awful compared to the norm? What if I were to tell you that you are normal for you? I am so excited to announce that my book, Normal For Me by Tamara K. Anderson is now available for purchase on Amazon. This book took me 10 years to write and I share 20 years worth of lessons learned in my life detours, including being in a car accident and having two of my children diagnosed on the autism spectrum. In this book, I share the secrets of how I made it from despair to peace with God's help. I also include a bonus diagnosis survival guide at the very end of my Normal For Me book. The diagnosis survival guide includes 12 tips to survive and thrive in tough times. Wouldn't you like to know what those are? So what are you waiting for? Grab your copy of Normal For Me today on Amazon. And we're back. I've been talking to Wendy Jakerson about her amazing coping techniques and strategies she's put in place dealing with bipolar issues, depression issues, and social anxiety issues. And it's just been baby steps. You know, you employ one thing at a time. So let's talk a little bit about love because you have all sorts of people you have come to love and this is not only within your own family, people with different beliefs, but also people that you've reached out to and met throughout your neighborhood and community. So talk to me a little bit about loving people where they are. Well, it's what Jesus does, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, we read in the Bible that Jesus um, didn't just hang out with the elite. In fact, he, 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 he hung out with people who who really needed what he had to offer, um, people who really struggled in so many areas. And he, he met people where they're at. And that is actually, I think, one of the definitions of grace that we, that we know as Christians. Um, and so loving people where they're at is, I believe, trying to love people, maybe like try to see people a little more like Jesus sees them and, and to be patient with others, because a lot of times we can, we can see, oh, well, I'm doing the best I can. But I really try to remember that I think people wake up in the morning and they're trying to do the best they can. Most people don't get up and think, how can I make life miserable for other people? Like, <laughs> right? Most people, yeah. we try to do the best we can. And a lot of times we fail miserably in many areas, but we're trying. And so that's what I, my, my big 
um, mantra to myself is we're all doing the best we can treat people like they're doing the, just assume people are doing the best they can and that's a really easy way to love people where they're at because you really if if you're expecting more than people can give or your or your any kind of expectations um it just kind of sets relationships and people up for failure and so if you just take people as they are as you meet them as they are doing um that's really the healthiest way to to live and to and to love me where i'm at is what mm -hmm. i'm still practicing <laughs> yes um yes because we need to include ourselves in that absolutely mix because i think well you're you're in the process of writing a book just for friends and family but yeah. i love that the title of your book is practice makes better perspective shifts from a recovering perfectionist. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I love that you call yourself a recovering perfectionist because often we expect perfection of ourselves oh, yeah. and we're not perfect. No, and and we never will be in this life. Christ is the only one that is perfect and and if we ever do become perfect it will be through his perfection. And mm -hmm. so it's when we when we try to be perfect in this life it's it, we're trying to do an impossible thing. And so it always sets us up for failure. And so in a long time ago, I just started um, calling myself a failed perfectionist. But that, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of like was, you know, negative. And so anyway, recovering perfectionist, I feel like I've heard that um, I in my last paper of my degree, my associate degree, I, I wrote it on perfectionism and how to overcome perfectionism and how mm. to ease the pressure of perfectionism. And, and I and I read that in one in one article that you know we're all on a different place in that path so yeah i i think there's a lot of people who are farther along that path but i am walking it and oh. trying my best to recover i love that i love that you're a recovering perfectionist i i i have those tendencies too and yeah. i think just the challenges of life have beaten me down so many yeah, times that right? you know what i figured out my living room does not have to look perfect and right? my kitchen is does not have the counters lock wiped off yeah. right now if you were to go yeah. in it oh, yeah. and 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 that was so not me when i got married mm -hmm. you know 20 some odd years ago yeah, right I, it, it was so not me i was that same type of person that yeah. everything has to be clean and perfect mm -hmm. and i don't know just two kids on the autism spectrum in life Abs i've just it's not one of the most important things absolutely and you so. have to figure you do have to figure out your priorities and um the term that that i that i learned in my research was toxic perfectionism mm. and and that and a lot of women have it but a lot of religious women especially struggle with toxic perfectionism the kind of perfectionism that is detrimental mm. um and and it is it's 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 trying to do all things to a high level and no human can do all things to a high level. You can do some things really well. You can wipe your counters if that's, you know, one of the only things you're doing during the day, like I did back in my habits. But, but you know, more, the more people you have in your life, the less you're going to have a clean house, the less you're going to have perfection <laughs> elsewhere. Just because, you know, people are messy and, and are time consuming and it's as it should be. So, yeah. So let me ask you this, because I think one of the things that people also struggle with is that love of self. And you meant, yeah. you've mentioned that a couple of times. Yeah. What have been perhaps the most important things that you've done to be able to learn to love yourself? Well, you know, I am still, this is, I'm a just baby steps on this one. This is, this has been my last final frontier, I think. Um, I, I realized I was watching my daughter um, put her, try to help her son, her baby son fall asleep at eight months. And you do kind of sleep training where you, where mm -hmm. you have them, you put them in the crib and they cry and then you go in at intervals. And anyway, I was watching her on the monitor and he was just, just beside himself screaming. And she was just looking down at him and kind of stroking his hair. And then she was going to go back out. And in that moment, this was just a month ago. In that moment, I realized I know how to self-criticize, but I have never learned how to self-comfort. I just mm. have never learned how to do it. I know how to do it for other people. I really mm. know how to be empathetic and comfort other people. But I just don't think because I, I've just been really harsh with myself as a perfectionist. And, and mental illness, I think, adds to that. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I just feel like self-compassion um, is something I want to try to work on the rest of my life. I, I work with a life coach and 
she talks about having your own back. If you don't have your own back, when mm-hmm. life is going down, who, who, who else is going to lift you up and encourage you? It has to come from us first. And, you know, if in the Bible, we love God, we love others, we love ourselves. It's all loving everybody. And we're mm-hmm. in that too. And so um, that's going to be a lifelong challenge, I think, that I'm going to continue to work on. And as we learn to do it with other people, loving them where they're at, I think we can, we can practice envisioning what would I say to my friend in this circumstance and try to, to apply that to us. And I'm learning. I'm still not doing that as well as I would like. But, but you know, practicing. Practice makes better. Yes, it does. I love that. Practice makes better. Oh, my goodness. Now, one of the things we have not delved into at all is multiple sclerosis. Right. Yeah. So because you didn't have enough on your plate. (laughs) No, bless you, my dear. So talk to me about, first of all, what is multiple sclerosis? Because I have not interviewed anybody that has multiple sclerosis. Just educate me and my listeners a little bit about what multiple sclerosis is and what this obstacle has meant for you. Okay, so I'll just do it real non-technical. So that's even better. (laughs) Okay, so if you envision a vacuum cord, and you know how it has kind of rubber on the outside, there's the metal wires on the inside with rubber on the outside. Well, if you've if you nick if you nick a vacuum cord just right, it'll put a little uh, divot in it, um, and you can sometimes see the wiring underneath. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. Mm -hmm. That's so. So if you think of your spinal cord and the covering around your brain, it's called the myelin sheath. If you mm-hmm. think about it, it's like the rubber around that vacuum cord. The electric, the electric current on the inside is like your spinal cord and your, and your brain. Well, multiple sclerosis is an, is an autoimmune um, disease, and autoimmune means your body attacks itself. As it attacks, it causes lesions or sclerosis is the term. So multiple sclerosis means there are multiple lesions um, and on your brain and on your spinal cord. And um, if, if it goes deep enough, then it affects the way the um, nerves pass along information. It, it um, interrupts that. And so then it ends up causing numbness and tingling and um, other things. My lesion is on the T9 disc of my of my spinal cord or, you know, on the myelin sheath outside that level. And so um, ever since it's been off and on, I remember probably the first episode I had probably was when I was pregnant with my daughter. I had my legs tingled so bad that the last, in the last month, my husband would just hold my legs on his lap while we would watch movies to just distract me. So I think that was probably the first episode. But anyway, um, I was diagnosed in January of 2013 um, and they finally, I did all through 2012, I had multiple MRIs and finally it, our deductible was met. So finally I was like, can we just, and nobody could ever figure out what was wrong. But wow. I, what I had was I have numbness and tingling from my, on my right side, from my ribs, where the T9 is my ribs to my toes on the right side. So that wow. whole right side of my body is, it tingles, is numb, it morphs, it's different all the time. And it makes me limp. Um, and, um, and sometimes it's a little bit in my left leg, but, um, so, uh, MS is diagnosed with a spinal tap. So you can have, there's lots of illnesses that can mimic it, even like lupus and different things can mimic it. But when you get a spinal tap, there's a certain kind of protein and it's like 20 syllables long. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> so tell you what it is. Say it. <laughs> it's like a lugga lugga something. It starts with an OL anyway. And, um, I had a high level of those proteins. And so that way they, um, they know that um, they have to find the lesion first. So what they did, the fifth set of MRIs is I had them do with and without contrast, my, my brain, um, upper and lower spinal cord. So all three MRIs. So it's, it's like you're in the tube for like two hours oh, gosh. and with or without contrast. And when they finally found the lesion with the, with the contrast, they looked back at the others and it was always there but the doctors always thought it was artifact 
quote unquote artifact is what it's like interference in the film. Mm -hmm. So they, so it had been there all along, but they didn't, they weren't able to see it. So, um, and then that was in December of 2012. And then January of 2013, I had this final tap and it was, it was um, confirmed. So you have to remember the timeline. August of 2012 is when my husband told me he didn't believe anymore. And so this was all happening in 2012, all these MRIs. And then January 2013 was when I was diagnosed. And then September of 2013 is when I had the prompting to, to know more people. So that was a, a very uh, lot, a lot happening in those two years. And I really do believe that if I hadn't started walking when I did, that the combination of my husband not believing and MS, I may never have gotten out of bed. It may, life may have just been too much for me. And mm. so I, I just thank God every day that he helped me to learn to walk. And, and so now when I walk, and when I walk, it does help with, with mood, with my bipolar, but also with MS, any, any walking you do helps anything in your body, but it also is kind of uncomfortable for my MS. So what I do is I have to wear very tight, thick, skinny jeans and um, extremely expensive sneakers. And if I wear those sneakers and my thick, thick, skinny jeans, then I don't limp. Um, wow. And I can, I can walk pretty well. Um, we had to move out of our four-level split in 2016 because it got to the point where I had to kind of pull myself up the banister. Mm. Um, I just didn't have, it just, it's weakness. You have weakness in your leg. Um, even though I was walking all the time, I was in good shape, but it just wouldn't do stairs. So my husband, he built us a main level living house built so that it, with, with really um, wide areas for future wheelchair, if that because a lot of people do end up in a wheelchair. Some people lose their mobility. Some people lose sight. Some people even lose control of their bladder. Oh my goodness, that would be a hard one. So anyway, mm -hmm. but so far for me, um, it's just that numbness in that one side and kind of wakes me up at night and that kind of thing. But it's, it's very doable. And I believe walking is part of the reason it's so doable. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Um, what advice would you give to someone who has a spouse like yours who decides they don't believe anymore? What, what have you done to keep your marriage successful and happy and joy-filled when you're married to someone who is not a believer? Well, it, it's not easy. I'm, I'm not going to tell you it's like an easy thing. It's been mm -hmm. really, it's been one of the most difficult things in my life. And I've had eight years to practice practice makes better. Like that's, I'm mm -hmm. telling you, that's my mantra. Um, but you know, my husband is the best person I know. He was in the beginning. He still is. A lot of times when people hear the word atheist, they think, you know, kind of like militant, kind of bad person. And, and most, I believe most atheists, at least the, the brand, <laughs> my husband and, and maybe son are, is they feel like if this life is it, if there's nothing after this life, then they're going to make this life count. And they're going to try to be the best person they can be. And they're going to try to make life just as, as good as they can for other people. And they're giving and loving. And that's the case with my husband. He's the most loving, kind person I know. And he has been so patient with me, with my, you know, with my bipolar and with MS. He's just been so patient. And, and when I was in bed, like, you know, he had to shoulder a lot of the household duties. And so I think about that a lot. I think, okay, well, he has stood by me through all this. So of course I can stand by him in something that's a struggle for, you know, it's not a struggle for him. He's decided, but something that's a struggle for me, I can absolutely stand by him because he has stood by me. So there's that. And also um, just remembering that, um, like, again, everybody's trying the best they can. And one of the things I believe is um, the atonement of Christ. Um, also, there's a, another principle, <clears throat> which is agency the freedom to choose. I believe they're absolutely connected. You can't have freedom to choose without the blessing of um, the Christ atonement to, to improve and, you know, when you make mistakes. And so for me, I remind myself that a lot. I don't want to inhibit other people's agency. People are going to choose. Like, they have already made their choice. Like, my, my children don't believe either. They've already made their choice. And so I can either fight against it and make them and me miserable, or I can accept that they have make, made their choice and I can love them where they're at, 
in mm. that choice, right? And I can just, it's not condoning it. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I can't, I can't, you know, accept them because then it's condoning what they're doing. It's not, they're doing it. They're, people are going to do whatever they're going to do. They're going to, they're going to choose. And so for me, that's, that really is what helps me with my family and what helps me with other people is just remembering that people, people are all on their own journey. You're, we're all walking back to God in our own way and in our own time. And, um, and if you don't believe in God, we're, you know, we're still on our journey. And so I just feel like we can't judge each other. We can't judge ourselves, but we really can't judge each other because we're all doing the best we can. And we're all at different levels. When I struggle and make mistakes, sometimes those really are the times I learn the most. And I hate that. I wish, <laughs> I wish I yeah. like that. <laughs> I <laughs> right. wish I could learn so well in like blissful times, but it does seem that we learn the most in struggles. And so I really do believe that that everybody learns at the level, at the, at the speed that they're going to learn, they're going to make the choices. And so I, and so that is what it is with my family. I just try to love them where they're at and remember that they let me choose too. They support, they don't, they don't criticize me because I still want to believe and I mm -hmm. still want to be actively involved in the church. They, they try very hard not to do that. And so I would like to ex extend the same um, courtesy to them. So that's kind of the way I handle it. And I just remember that, you know, God loves them just as much as he loves me, probably more, <laughs> you know, he's, he wants to reach out to all of us. And so I think that, I think that God loves people who don't love him too. Yeah. I, 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 I completely agree. Right? Oh, that's he's, beautiful. Cause he's perfect. So just trying in my own tiny little way to practice doing it how he does. Oh, you're such a great example of that. Now, let me ask you this, Wendy. Um, is there a favorite verse of scripture or two that, that have become meaningful to you through all of your ups and downs of life? Yeah. I have a hard time remembering things um, without having them in front of me. Do you have them in front of you? I do, actually. Okay, like do you want me to read them for you? Could you? I'm so sorry. I, I have a very hard time when I'm nervous remembering things. One of them's in Philippians. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Tell me why that's a favorite. That's actually my mantra. So I, I, I resonate with that so it's, much. <laughs> it's bite size. It's like a very yes. easy one to remember. And for me, that one has been so powerful because when I was anxious and depressed, I couldn't do things on my own strength. I had to depend on him. And, and I feel like I did things that were like superhuman for me. Like mm. I shouldn't have been able to do those things. Very few people visit 500 women, even yeah. like completely <laughs> healthy extroverts. And so the things that I've been able to do are completely impossible for me to do in my own strength. And so I just am so grateful for Christ's strength. If I can yoke myself to him, that he can, he can pull me along. He can, he can stand by my side and help me. So that, that's why that overcoming anxiety and depression has been, that's been my, that's been my saving verse. Oh, love that. And then the other one is in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Yes, thank Why you. has that one been meaningful to you? Um, I have an anchor, like a ceramic decorative anchor that's, that says anchored. And then it has that Proverbs verse on it. And I have it at the base of my office like down by the baseboard so like it's anchored mm. like an anchor and that that verse is on there so for me when I don't understand the situation with my family not choosing to believe I I don't understand it because we started out on the same on the mm -hmm. same wavelength on that and now it's completely different and so because I don't understand and I can't see the future I just just have to trust I have to trust Heavenly Father that he understands he sees the whole picture. He sees it all. And, and, you know, I am one that I believe in the long game. I think God plays the long game and I want to try to play the long game. And I believe that we'll all, we'll all end up where we're comfortable and he, he wouldn't want it any other way. And so I just, I just trust in him. I trust that he, he's a perfect parent and he knows how to do this a lot better than I do. So I, I <laughs> thank I just, goodness, right? <laughs> right. So I just try to trust him. And that, so that's why that one, that one matters a lot to me when I don't understand things, when I, when I'm so confused and, and don't know the next step just to pray and try to follow what he tells me. 
Um, now, you mentioned that as far as resources go, you've mentioned Hillary Weeks. Yeah. Um, so tell me, she's an inspirational Christian singer. Yeah. Tell me what, what her music has done and how it has helped you through all of your struggles. Well, you know, she's been writing music for 20 years, so I've been listening to her ever since 1993, and she has, it's like I work for her, I don't work for her, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like she's had 12, she's, she's produced 12 CDs, the last three have charted on the Billboard Christian charts, like in the top 10, um, she's, so she's really good, she's mm-hmm. not, she's not just inspirational, she's amazingly talented, anyway, and she's a really good person too, I've met her a couple times in real life, her music it's very grace and Christ centered, but it's also very positive. And like, um, you, you have the power within you also to overcome hard things. Like there's one song called brave that I, it was kind of like my theme song, um, grab your shoes, open the door and go out. That's not the phrase. That's not exactly, but go out and meet the day, basically be brave. Mm -hmm. And I listen, I listened to that every day before I went out visiting. Okay. Get your shoes on, go out the door and go be brave. (laughs) And so there's a lot of songs that are like that in 2011. It actually, the CD is called every step. Mm -hmm. And so while I was walking every step, that CD was just my, it was like my soundtrack. And then the next one was called Say Love, and it's 2013, and it's all about loving people where they're at, really, and Mm. all about grace. And then the one in 2016 is called um, Love Your Life, and it's very much just just really loving loving where you're at and loving the the things you've been given. And um, and now she has a subscription service um, started in 2019. So she's going into it'll be the third year next year, and every month she she has a, a new song that she releases on the first day of the month. There's a song study. She gives you the lyrics. She gives you the piano music. Um, and uh, there's there's artwork. Like all over my office, I have her artwork. There's card size ones and there's five by sevens. And like literally I've got like 40 of them all over my office. <laughs> As a reminder, you know, yeah. that, that God's in control and that I can do hard things. And anyway, so that's why I love her. So, and that, that subscription is... I think it's less than $50 a year. It's not very much. And um, it's at live all in today. I think.com you might put it in the show notes. Maybe I will. I'll be, I'll for sure put it in the show notes. And there's an app on your phone, the live all in app. And you have all of her songs that are just on the app and they'll just play. It has the artwork behind them. She's really done an amazing thing. That is so amazing. I love that. She does not pay me, but I am just her biggest biggest fan. I, I actually owe besides Jesus, I owe my life to her basically. Cause she was, she was the one that helped me through my journey. So very grateful to her anyway. So okay. that's, that's getting my all plug. teary again. I know that's <laughs> my plug for her, but it really is because it's just very, there's nothing. Uh, it's just so uplifting. Wow. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Now, Wendy, there's going to be people that, um, are, are just, so touched by all of the stories and the wisdom that you've shared that they're going to want to connect with you. What is the best way for them to connect with you? Well, I, um, back in 2017, I made little business cards, but they're not business cards. They're what I do cards that say walking with Wendy and uh-huh. I handed them out to my friends and family. So my, my blog is walking with Wendy.blogspot.com. It's Wendy with an I. And then the blog's name is Wend Your Way. So mm-hmm. I did a, and so that's, and it's just, it's, it was the accountability tool I used to write my, the first draft of my book. I wrote it in six weeks. So it's just kind of slapped on there. Um, but, but there's, you know, a lot of Hillary Weeks lyrics and it's my journey. Um, and since then I've, you know, refined and everything, but, and then, then I've put a few other positive things on there, but that's, I don't really, I'm not a, I'm not a famous person. I'm not, you know, whatever. But, <laughs> and that's but okay. That, that's, that's a place that people, I guess, could just leave a comment or, you know, their email or whatever. And, I guess that's how people could get a hold of me. Thank you. That's perfect. Oh, my goodness. Well, Wendy, you have been so generous with sharing such personal stories and giving out such amazing bits of wisdom of things you've learned along the way. I just can't thank you enough for being willing to share your baby steps of courage um, that have taken you from 
basically being completely incapacitated to influencing so many people for good. So thank you. Thank you for being willing to share. Thank you. Can I just say one more thing? Absolutely. So uh, you and I have talked about this the last six weeks. I've been in a very, very deep depression because it's, you know, we've all been through COVID and Mm -hmm. I did not expect that to ever happen again, but it is part of my illness. And it's just very interesting. We've talked about this, that the day that you asked me to be on this podcast, I finally just had broken, you know, I'd surfaced from this depression. And so in the book and on my journey in the blog, I talk a lot about my recovery. I don't talk a lot about the darkness, but Heavenly Father has reminded me again about the darkness. And we're never done with, with the struggles we have. They cir- sometimes they circle around again. As we use the, the skills and the, the gifts he gives us, to, we can overcome them and, 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 and be okay within them. So I just wanted to say that, that, that I'm just so grateful that Heavenly Father helped me surface again in just the right, just the right timing. And so it's not all rosy. And I have, I, you know, I have overcome so much, but there's always things to overcome and there's always things to even sometimes relearn. So I just wanted to say that just so people don't think, oh, well, she's just figured it out. And, and I have not. And it's, it's a process, it's, right? It's absolutely a process. So I just needed to say that um, just so that people didn't think I had it all figured out. <laughs> I seriously don't. <laughs> None of us do, my dear. No, and so and so hopefully this Wendy sharing her steps along her journey of life uh, will inspire you to take a baby step in your own direction. So Wendy, thanks again for sharing your story. It it has inspired me so very much and I know it will have a ripple effect to help others as well. So thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I know that there are many of you out there that are going through a hard time, and I hope you found things that have been useful today as you listen to the podcast. If you would like to access the show notes from today's podcast, visit my website. It is storiesofhopepodcast.com. That is where you'll find favorite quotes from today's episode and shareable memes And those are fun because you can share them with your friends on social media. You will also find the links mentioned throughout today's episode so you don't have to remember what those were. And also all the tips that were shared. Sometimes tips are shared so much throughout an episode you forget. What were those great things? So go to the show notes, storiesofhopepodcast.com to look up these fantastic resources. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode... Perhaps that means that you should share this with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a tip that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this episode with them. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help bear that burden Above all else, remember, God loves you.